Good evening. Being here in Pietermaritzburg has always been a very special treat to me. Um, I grew up in an Indian community on the island of St. Vincent. And um, uh, when I came to Pietermaritzburg, it was as though I was again among my own family. Cyril, how are you? It's good to see you both. I could do that for quite a bit here right now, but I won't. <laughs> Don't feel slighted, just Cyril caught my attention. Dear friends, from, from way back at the beginning. And um, I discovered that uh, there were varieties of curry here that took me back to my earliest memories. You know how, how food has a way of evoking emotions. And so I found myself uh, in the role of a boy again, um, tasting and experiencing things that had in some ways become dormant in me because I lived for so long in the United States. And um, the curry there is mostly Indian curry. And uh, it's not quite the same. Uh, so, but far beyond, of course, food and uh, conversation are a people. Uh, Lauren, it's good to see you here tonight. Um, Lauren has the habit of saying that when I come, things uh, become asymmetrical. Things uh, I come at times when um, when things are turned upside down, and. I admit that, that for a long time I thought, no, I think she's just um, imagining things. But as I actually look back over my coming here, she's right. Things have been turned upside down. Uh, not, not so much of my own doing, but because in anticipation of my coming, God will often allow things to happen so that I might speak to them make sense out of them. I don't anticipate being here tonight to be the cause of anything, but I do anticipate that the Lord might provide some answers for you for things that you've been going through. I know that uh, many of you are visiting tonight. I don't know quite what the common background is for the River of Life family I'm fully aware of what that background is, and for portions of my own family, Jen and Leon here tonight, I know I have the baseline of understanding of what those things are, but for, for the rest of you, I really don't know. So um, to those uh, familiar with me, things I might say might be repetitive, but I, I will run the risk of being repetitive um, as much to establish a baseline of understanding. My intention is not ever to come and preach messages. You could listen to them on the internet. You don't have to get out of your homes or, or, or comfortable environments. There is an impartation of grace, however, that is not possible by simply listening. Uh, because they're carriers of grace. They're people appointed by God on the earth to carry manifestations of his presence. And 
the word coming forth out of those vessels of clay actually is the best wine. Because there is, an, there is a, a standard, as it were, that is brought back into our midst so that we could both taste and see that the Lord is good. And I hope that in the time that we're here tonight, there'll be some opportunity to, uh, to speak to these issues. In, uh, in Cape Town, some of the brethren there apprised me of the fact that when I first came to the Cape, I was speaking about sonship as the baseline of the relationship between God and man. And although the message of sonship has been in the earth for some time, apparently uh, some of the aspects of that message ignited in the hearts of people in the Cape and began to resonate with them, particularly among the colored people. I remember distinctly speaking to them about an identity as the sons of God and how God positioned them between the races as agents of reconciliation of both the races because in them already were, were what, what was said was, or what was said to them from, from as early back as they could remember was that they were neither black nor white. But I came and I said, but I say to you, you're both black and white. And God positioned you because to be neither means you're a non-entity. You do not exist. If you're not black and if you're not white, then you don't exist. Because you're both this and that. And if you take this away and if you take that away, then nothing remains. But it is a craft of the enemy to deny them the essential positioning in the earth in a moment in time, intentioned by God before the foundations of the world to become agents of reconciliation at a time and place when the nation needed it most. All of our gospel is not about sayings from the Bible. Our gospel is about the understanding of the majesty of the living God. That is our gospel. And, and when carriers of this grace speak, there's an impartation of the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And there's an impartation of the gospel of the glory of the light of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Because these things first become true in our flesh. The word was always meant to be incarnated. The term carnal is the term flesh. So when the eternal makes its appearance in the earth, it invariably does so in an incarnate form. Therefore the head has need of the body because it's in the body that the intentions of the head become visible. So in, in, in the Cape, when, when I spoke about that, there was an impartation. What I did not anticipate at the time was the trouble I was going to start by making such announcements. 
In fact, when I first had the revelation that we are truly the sons of God, I was overwhelmed because the one thing that all mankind seeks is an identity. You cannot have a purpose apart from an identity. Whatever you perform, whatever you do, whatever you acquire, whatever you become, is only satisfying if it is related to an appropriate identity. Otherwise, it's an accumulation of things without purpose. And it does not resolve the issue within you that has been there since Adam departed from his father. So, sonship was a great explosion in my spirit that I was actually a son of God. And that by the design of God. Well, I did not at the time, and that was the goodness of God, understand that being a son is a process that begins with being born. But no father intends that the son be merely born. What do you have when you have a son that is born? You have an infant. And you cannot commit anything into the hands of an infant. An infant is a most total consumer of goods and services. An infant is the quintessential consumer. I have a new granddaughter, and um, just born less than three months ago. And uh, when I go over to see her, she is she consumes everybody's attention. She consumes their time, and she is entirely unresponsible. She just does what she wants to. If she's hungry, she cries. If she is wet, she cries. If she's tired, she cries. And she expects that everybody jumps and tends to her. And you know what? We all delightfully do so. And think it such a wonderful thing in changing her nappy. <laughs> but that shouldn't be happening when she's 16. And when she's 37, you hope she's gone by then. <laughs> as obvious as these things are, it did not occurred to me at the time when I discovered sonship that what I had discovered was also a process. And that that process is intentional, ordained by God to produce a substantial result. A result of one who may be presented as the duplicate of the invisible God. If I could make the jump from both the natural to the spiritual and from infancy to maturity.
So how do we get there? This is the thing that I didn't understand. I did not actually understand that my father intends to discipline me so thoroughly. He intends to discipline me so thoroughly that when he's done, and I am ready, because when he's done, I will be ready, he will present me as an authentic reflection of himself. For me, discipline was just a nudge here and a nudge there. Not so at all with God. God fully intends to shape you in his image and likeness by a process that is so thoroughly invasive that everything in you that opposes this result, he will ruthlessly crush. All the while, fully knowing where he's going to take you. But how do you think that the child views the process? Because the child begins by being a complete consumer of goods and services. With no intention of doing anything in response. And thinking that that's the way the world ought to be. For the rest of her days. I remember just recently, I have another granddaughter... Seems like my grand, grand, seems like my daughters, my granddaughters, or the females of my house teach me more about um, things I need to learn than the males. <laughs> Maybe that's just the way it is. I don't know, um, but that's just the way it is in my house. But my other granddaughter, uh, who thinks that my sole purpose is to bring her chocolates when I come to see her. Was doing something. (laughs) The other day I was over and she said, Granddad, what did you bring me? And I said, I don't know. You have to feel in my pocket. (laughs) And she stuck her hand in my... I was wearing a a, um, a shirt with with a hood and had pockets on the side. She stuck her hand in my pocket. Her eyes lit up. She pulled one out and she said, Chocolates. <laughs> but she was surprised when I said to her on, on an occasion recently, Sailor, you cannot do that. And she looked at me like, Granddad, that came out of your mouth? There's something I can't do? Surely you must be mistaken. She saw a side of her granddad that was not just chocolates a restraint, an intentional restraint. And suddenly, the mythology that everything about her is perfect was abused. 
And she began to experience something different. Our sufferings, you see, are ordained by God. And they are intentional. And I'll tell you a secret. The greater your destiny, the more invasive, the more rigorous, the more unrelenting God is in dealing with the things that will keep you from becoming what he foreknew you to be before you were in your mother's womb. I remember a particular period in my life when in the dealings of God I came to such a place of resignation. You go from one thing to the other. You go from fighting God, praying for everything that you think will alleviate the problem, usually finances. And you you go from that to a place of resignation where you say, okay, you are bigger than I am. I can't fight with you. So now, I have no responsibilities because it's all your fault. I don't have to do anything because everything I do, you frustrate. Every effort I make, you undercut. And since you're going to be like that, then I can't take responsibility. And God will let you wallow in that condition for a while. And then one day he'll say to you, get up and get out. Like he said to Israel, up ye out. Get up and get out. And you look around as if to say, can't be talking to me. I'm the one whose neck is his footstool. He only knows me as one upon whose neck he can put his foot. So I don't have any responsibility. Clearly he's not talking to me. He's talking to whomever else he's speaking to. It's clearly not me. It's not my time. I'm his victim. He doesn't know who I am, doesn't remember me. Look at all the stuff that's happened to me. How could he possibly be asking me now in my state of being reduced to nothing? How could he possibly be asking me to do anything? Now, over the next um, several hours, I want to unpack for you with specificity the role of suffering in the life of a maturing son. And it goes with the fact that we are called to be sons. And I'll give you a hint. If you think you're smart enough to keep some hidden cache of stuff in your life that you can't give up, and you can paint over it, so that it looks camouflaged from God, 
with your language and your thought processes and the way you can communicate with God is sitting there with his eye on that very place. And you're not going to get away with it. He's going to invade the most sacred of your recesses. The most highly reserved of your precious things. Because that is the idol that prevents you from becoming capable of carrying his presence as a mature son. That is the other God that you cannot be allowed to worship. Hmm? I don't know what all of your backgrounds are, as I said in the beginning, but I am sure that if you're a believer, we have connected on this plane. Hmm? And it doesn't matter if you're young in age or old in age. In God, there is no retirement. As long as you draw breath, your father will never leave you, and might I say, never leave you alone, nor forsake you. But, before I leave this area to go back now and do an overarching frame, I want you to understand that before you get started in the process, God knows exactly where he wants to take you. And from time to time along the way, he will specifically lift you up out of circumstances and set you in the next place that you're supposed to be in. And that's the troubling thing about God. Because you'll see him do magnificent things like that and the next day you're beset by your enemies. And you'll say, this is confusing. I don't know how to get my mind around. I don't know how to relax and rest in what God is doing. This is thoroughly confusing to me. The other day I was talking to the Lord, you might say, about all these problems I'm facing. And suddenly, a result that I could not possibly have imagined happened. I was the pick for this job, or I was the one given the the best um, uh, notifications. I exceeded beyond any expectations that I had. But then you come into the new position, and right there is the opposition meeting you at the door. And then you begin to think, well, wait a minute. God put me here. What is this opposition doing? Surely if God put me here, then this thing ought to be removed because this is blocking me from a place of enjoyment. I would suggest to you, God is confronting you at the door with the opportunity to succeed in the job or in the assignment. But I need to frame all of that a little bit more um, tightly. Lest it seems that in our walk with God, we're simply uh, going through an unending cycle, purposeless, 
uh, in, its, uh, in its feel and look, an unending cycle of, as we say in America, boom and bust, making it such that it's very difficult to rely or to rest in the fact that God is with you, making it appear to be um, not something you want to put your whole hope in, and you want to keep a reserve because you're never sure when God is going to let it pull all the thing, all the rug out from under your feet. I will begin this portion of the message with an anecdotal reference. I am now at the age, in case you're wondering, I just turned 65 the other day. See, I've gotten much older since I started coming here. This place ages you. (laughs) But... The advantage of becoming older is you have the opportunity to be wiser, to see what you could not have seen before. And I'm actually delighted to be this age because of that very fact. So I went in the other morning to pray. You know, I'm not really talking to you as a theologian. I'm talking to you as a father someone who understands things that I think you need to know. I'll explain it from the word, but this is a time to apply oil and wine to to, um, massage the hurts and the injuries so that you might have hope. Because Lauren, believe it or not, I'm a bringer of hope. (laughs) and encouragement. So I was in the other morning talking to the Lord. I have a habit of getting up in the mornings and praying. And uh, not because I'm religious, it's just that's what I do. I don't, you know, the days get by very quickly. And so I, I have to be intentional. So I was in talking to the Lord and there's this room in my house where I, where I go uh, to do that. And I always kneel down before the Lord. It helps me. It gives me perspective. I'm not saying you need... None of what I'm telling you is, is, is anything I'm saying you need to do. Okay, I'm just, this is autobiographical. This just happened to be where I was when this happened. So knelt before the Lord and began to pray as I typically do which is to say, my father. And a wave came over me when I said those words, my father, my father. And I couldn't get beyond the words, my father. Because there was triggered in me an enormous... um, like a tidal wave, a tsunami of emotions. I thought immediately about how Nick sees me. Nicholas being my son. Uh, I thought how he sees me. 
the way he sees me, and he said so in his, is that he doesn't always understand me. Doesn't understand everything I do or how I think about everything. But he and I have worked together now for some four or five years as he's editor on my on our books and, and now I'm giving him credit for his work as a co-author of our books because he really is that. So he and I have talked for endless hours in the preparations of these books about the backgrounds, what I see as being what the scriptures are saying and so on and so on. So he's come to know my heart. He has come to know what I'm thinking behind the words that I'm saying. But more to the point, he has come to know me. When he sees the way I am with his children, it's not surprising to him. When he sees the way I am with others, it's not surprising to him. It's consistent. He has come to know me. And the thought came to me. This was the wave. You know, I have been walking with God now, consciously, for 50 years. I first publicly received the Lord at the age of 15. Or 14, I was almost 15. So full 50 years I've been walking with the Lord in all manner of circumstances. From a small boy all the way to where I am now. And it struck me that I ought to know God better. And it was not appropriate for me to relate to God out of positions of fear, doubt, or unbelief. That they had been built up in me such a reservoir of the understanding of God for more than five decades that I should know God with an unflinching, unwavering certainty. And I, it's as though something broke loose in me. And I entered a new place just before I completed 65 years. So I want to tell you about some of those things and how they interpret the book for me. I want now to begin. I hope that you can make it for these messages. I intend to, the Lord willing, I intend to unpack uh, some of this also up in, uh, in the conference, uh, up in the ALS that is coming. So I want to begin, I have about 38 minutes left for tonight's session. So I've, I've sort of come into the session, you know, full on, to present the issue of suffering in the life of a believer as it relates to the issue or the question of becoming a mature son. And I ended with an anecdotal reference to the fact that it was time for me to take up uncontrovertibly the truth that I am a mature son. 
And what that requires is a radical, intentional shift in my mindset to accommodate that truth and now to live and to occupy the reality of that. But it's not intended to be an individualized occurrence. In other words, it's not supposed to be just me coming to that. If perhaps I've gone before in some matter, then maybe you will be benefited by that. But the real message is that there is a company, whether you're young or you're old, whether you are at this stage of maturity or you're somewhere becoming, that there is a measure of truth that has been imparted to you about the nature of God that now you must occupy. You must occupy and push back the spirit of doubt and unbelief. Push back and push yourself away from the culture of the orphan who only knows how to manipulate the result (coughs) on the basis of alleging that he's a victim. You're not, if you're the sons of God, you're not victims. You have a father. You're not orphans. And the sufferings that you're facing are ordained under the hand of your father to cause you both to grow up in the stage you're in so you can come to the next stage. And in that stage, like the stage before, you may become the actual physical representation of your father in that place. And, and the secret is this. There is an economy of grace from God that will meet you in that place. And in that economy, you will be more than conquerors. And when you're done with that stage, he'll take you to the next one. Because if you've been faithful with a little, he will give you more. And after you've lived a while in the earth, you will never in this earth be free of problems. Okay? Can I say that to you? It's not about being problem free. It's about understanding the value of your training. So that you could rule over your circumstance as one sent from God who is a partaker of the divine nature. So that you become the bread from heaven. You become the light of the world. This is how it's supposed to happen. So let me frame it here now in, uh, in the time that I have remaining. It is not about avoiding the conflict. It's about developing the character to rule in the midst of conflict. Your peace is not the cessation of adversarial forces or of conflicting circumstances. Your peace is not in that. Your peace is that you 
can sleep in the storm because you are from another realm. And the storm actually does not threaten you. But this isn't hyping anybody. This is about what does sonship look like after you've engaged it for a while. Okay? So, I want to start here. And I'll, I'll unpack this in the next set of sessions that I'm with you. In the beginning, God said, and the, the things that I know you already know because of the commonalities of our faith, I'll simply refer to. Uh, although I'm likely to bring some measure of illumination to those very things. Like this one. God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Now, God speaks with the language of timelessness. It's inevitable for God to speak with the language of timelessness because he's outside of time. Time is one of the elements that is in God. So it's foolish to ask the question, where was God when? Because time is in the person of you know You know why you can't see God? It's obvious why it's impossible to see God. God, you see, is a spirit. The vastness of God is so complete that there's nothing outside of God. Now, when I was flying here uh, from Atlanta a few days ago, um, as we approached the African coastline from 35,000 feet up, I could see a long swath of the western uh, portion of South Africa. From a, a long way out and a long way up, I could see it. When we landed in Joburg, all I could see were um, South African Airways jets. <laughs> My perspective changed. If you're going to see something, if you're going to see anything in its entirety, it's necessary for you to have to move to a location outside of the thing in order to be able to observe the thing. Which is why I'm always amused when science attempts to comment on God. But that's another story. Because science by nature, uh, the scientific method, is that of observation. But if you're only observing from within and not from without, anything you say is limited to the field of your vision. And it inherently is incomplete. Science is of no value in understanding God as God. 
but science is of immeasurable value in understanding things about God that may be observed. Sure. So Stephen Hawking is wrong in his view that we don't need God. That is like someone who is so uh, capable of focusing the, the, the eyepiece of the, of the microscope into the minutia that he thinks his observations on the minutia are exact um, analogies to the macro picture. No. Until and unless you can go outside of God and see the whole of who God is all at once, any observation you have on God is inherently limited. Now, how can you get outside of God? You cannot. You cannot get outside of God to observe God. And doing it over a long period of time doesn't help because time is in God. God is a spirit from whom everything comes that is. So it's impossible to observe God and comment on what you see about God in the totality of God. Every commentary on God that we may make is in part. Now I see in part. I prophesy in part. And more to the point, it takes the aggregate of all those who may observe God accurately, which is another whole phenomenon, requires spirit, the, the aggregate of all of them together to be able to form an intelligent view of who God is. Which is why it takes the corporate man to understand and carry the presence of God. Though we may all have portions of revelation, and insight. It requires the corporate man. Now, so, when God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, God was speaking in the language of timelessness. Now, here's what that means. It means that before there was time, this time, there were long ages past. Come on, you've read that in the scriptures. From Ephesians chapter 3, there were things which God hid in himself for long ages past. I'll give you an example of a thing that existed long ages past that you know about. Tell me again, when was the lamb slain? You just said something occurred that's now affecting us in this time before this time actually existed. You believe it, do you not? The lamb was slain, <coughs> pardon me, slain from the foundations of the world. You know, that was before, that was before the earth was created. Because God spoke to Job about that. He said, where were you? When I established the foundations of the earth and spread it out upon nothing. 
So before there was material out of which to form the body of man, dust of the ground, God had already determined that the lamb would be slain. Okay? So the creation of man took place pursuant to a pre-existing covenant. Sure. Because the one who was slain paid a price for something. That implies a covenant. All the lawyers in the room know that. Right? If you're paying a price, unless you're hoping to uh, confer benefit without merit, in which case it'd be a free gift, if somebody has to, it may be a free gift in the result to you, but the one who is slain gave everything. So he's, he's entitled to something to consideration, the lawyers would say. He's entitled to consideration for his investment. Consideration from whom? From the one who required the slaying. Right? So before the creation of man, there was a covenant between the one who required the slaying of the lamb and the one who would be slain, governing what would happen to man. So man was not an accident created without context. Man was created according to what the scriptures call the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And in fact, God swore on oath to himself that he would make man the beneficiaries of this promise. So this begins to take on Aspects in the law that, is, that are things such as third-party beneficiary covenants, which means you don't have to be a life in being at the time of the execution of the covenant, but it was executed for the purpose of pre- creating a benefit for you at the time that you would arrive. Well, why would you possibly do that for anybody, especially... If the cost to create the benefit is so overwhelming, the lamb was slain. That's pretty overwhelming. So why would you do that? That's not an afternoon's jaunt in the country. That's not just, well, I'll just do that. No. That is to establish a value to man that is far greater than the creation itself. Now, if he's going to be all that trouble to you, why are you bothering to create him? Well, the answer is not that redeeming man is the end of the matter, but redeeming man is necessary on account of the value you place in him. So even if you have to buy him back, the value of his existence is far greater to you than the cost to repurchase him. So salvation is not the end of the game. But something else is the end of the game, and it's not salvation, it is a term in scripture that is called reconciliation. Which is an accounting term to put the person back into the prior existing state. 
All of that now before man was created. So this is something, the creation of man takes place against the background of things hidden in God for long ages past. I know you know all these things are in the Bible. That's why sometimes it's required that the carrier of grace comes to unpack things you already know and show you what you have. Not so that we could be great in your eyes, but you might be enriched with the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Paul said, I long to come to you to impart to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might understand, that you might understand how wide and deep and long and high is the will of God, is the love of God for you. We're messengers of a covenant of which you are the beneficiaries. And so there's certain skills that are wrapped up in human persons, certain abilities that are called grace to show you the majesty of your estate as a son of God, that you might not lose heart, that you might not lose heart, but you will pursue. So when God speaks, he speaks in the language of the past. And when he's speaking, the method of the execution of his power is by speech. So when he's speaking the thing at the time, he's calling a form of what he already knows into being. He's calling it into being. But even as it comes in that form, its future is fully understood by God. So that its present form is going to matric to become exactly in the end what was known from the beginning. So in its present form, it is always going to be in part until the perfect comes. So when God said, let's, let's look at this, how it works here in the creation of man. So we already looked at the past. At least we took a, we took a peek. At this, this could not be considered a full glare look at it. We took a peek at the past. And we saw under the cover of that that there was a pre-existing covenant that required God to fully invest himself in the redemption of man because the purpose for which he had created man was sufficiently great to God that to buy him back to accomplish that purpose was worth the best of heaven. Now that he determined before he made him. So what did he make? He made something that would become all that he envisioned. But the moment he made him, he invested spirit in flesh and gave it life on the earth. And he called that thing that he made man, Adam. Both a proper name like Tom and Paul, or Susan and B, 
and also the generic man, humankind. But was that all that God saw when he said, let us make man in our own image and in our own likeness? Of course not. Because the terms image and likeness defines what he's creating. And this thing that he's made here is not fully that. This is a seed that can produce that. Everything at creation was the first of its type with the intention of many to follow. So, in, in the, the man, Adam, God enclosed spirit to produce a race of spirit beings contained in flesh. So there was, there was Christ in Adam... Christ was, the spirit was put in man, spirit was put in man with the intent that ultimately man would contain the fullness of spirit. So first there was a natural man who contained a spirit that which natural man in his progeny produced one who's called Christ. This one, when he comes, receives back into himself all those who had departed from God but now wish to come back. Now, he bore in him in his body the consequence of that because that's part of why he came. The consequence of man's departure from God was born in the body of the Lord Jesus, the Christ. But God raised him from the dead because the consequence was that the lamb would be slain. But God raised him from the dead And brought him back to life as primarily a spiritual man whose purpose in the earth, a spiritual man known as Christ, whose purpose in the earth would be to assemble the spirits of men who were brought to death in themselves and made alive in Christ. And to assemble them in the earth, in human flesh, to be the alternative to humans who have totally departed from God, continue to depart from God, now being confronted with the restoration in the earth of the very picture of God himself. That picture is called Christ. And you're assembled 
to this body because unlike the human body which is in form and in space limited the spiritual man was designed to receive again spirits that would be restored to God through his sacrificial work on the cross and now assembled in the earth not as a group of individuals in church but as one living corporate being in the earth. Now, what did God call the first man? The man that he made of the earth in whom he breathed spirit. What did God call that Adam? Son. Son. But that Adam was a seed in the earth for the other Adam who would come. The other Adam came out of that seed in the flesh. But the reason that he did not have, uh, that he did not come into the earth to be the son of man alone, and indeed the scriptures trace him through Joseph, but he comes into the earth by an immaculate conception. Not the sperma of a man. The man was only his caretaking father. In that sense, he's connected to Adam. And in the sense of coming through a human female, he was connected to Adam. But he is an original creation like Adam, the first son, was an original creation. The first man was of the earth. The last man is from heaven. And that does not mean from heaven when he comes back from heaven. That means his origin was from heaven. Because God is his father. So God has son number one, in whom he encased spirit in flesh. And he has son number two, who is the exactness of his being, who is capable of assembling us together with him in the earth. So when God looked upon this moment that we're reading now in Genesis, in which God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. With imaging technology, we understand making a perfect copy. We went from the Xerox machine of many, many years ago, many decades ago, now to um, printing, to ceramic printing, uh, where you can actually create a 3D object that is an exact copy. And we're, we're playing around with, um, uh, with uh, DNA, and what am I saying, in uh, cloning. We're playing around with cloning. So we are, imaging technology has come a long way from the days of the mimeograph machine, which some of you may understand have visiting museums 
Yeah, some of the younger ones have no idea what you're talking about when you're talking about a mimeograph machine. It's one of those things you cranked and turned and papers came out and they were printed badly, but we were happy to have the copy. So we know what an image is. An image is a replication of the thing. If God is a spirit, what is an image what is an image of God? It has to be spirit. If God is a spirit, it will not do for an image of God to be purely flesh. If God is a spirit, an accurate image of God is also spirit. So when God said, let us make man in our own image, he envisioned in this event of creating, when he made that man, that this man would become in the future. Through processes that God would install, and more specifically, through the person that God would bring into the earth for that exact assembly and installation, God meant for this Adam to migrate to this next Adam, who is the image of God. The natural containing that which migrates to and becomes identified with the spirit. And, but not just that the man would become spirit, but he also envisioned the likeness, the likeness, the image and likeness. Likeness is, is not, to say image and likeness is not to say image twice. Okay? Image is reflection. <coughs> Pardon me. Image is of like substance. Likeness, however, is to behave actually like the thing. So likeness is when you behave in a particular manner, they will both see and understand the thing that is absent, but of which you are the image and likeness. The invisible God is so large that it is impossible to experience him visibly. To be able to, to walk up and embrace him. That's impossible. To observe how he is and moves in the realms of mankind. That's impossible. I mean, even if he's doing things, your ability to observe him and to understand what he's doing is limited by the fact that you're a portion and he is the whole. So how does he intend to become visible? How does he intend to make himself known? By creating one who is in the image and likeness of himself. That he is clothed in the limitations of human flesh so that he might be observed and understood as he is. Isn't it marvelous that the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, 
when his disciples wanted to know if it really were the Lord, he said, touch me, handle me. He had previously said that in other references where he said, (coughs) pardon me, if you've seen me, you have seen my father. Because the imaging process and the process of making you like the father is the process called fathering. Fathering. That's why Jesus told us when it was all accomplished and he was returning to heaven, he said, you may pray like this. Our Not just my father. He often prayed that way. Oh, my father. But he began to unveil the purpose of his being when he started to teach the disciples how to pray like this. When you pray, say, Our Father. The process by which the son of Adam becomes a son of God is by assembly to the one who is the Son, from whom we derive our very existences as spirit beings in the world. And coming through him, we have been granted to be included with him, so that when God sees Christ, he sees the corporate man. God is not intimidated by a son who is corporate. (coughs) Pardon me, because the very nature of God is corporate. So when God sees this son, born in the earth, assembled over time, developed and trained through the processes of heaven, presented in the final stage, (coughs) pardon me, presented in the final stage, of his maturation. God who nurtured this concept in his heart for long ages past, who initiated it at the beginning of time when he made Adam, who focused that at the cross, when now in our time, this is why we are in this time, When now in our time, this sun is assembled in the earth. Many members comprise a body. You can't have a body. Sun has a body. And a body is comprised of many, say many, many members. It's a corporate sun. But God's intention is, having moved all of this through history, now, in the earth, the prize that caused God to want to commit to the redemption of man at such an inordinate price. The prize is that when he sees rising from the earth this spirit man who is first spirit and then flesh, 
whose behavior in the earth has been so disciplined and trained by heaven itself so that he behaves in the earth as if he truly is born from heaven. He behaves in the earth, son of man, but as the son of God. When God looks on the final result, you know what he will say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The road to get there is through suffering. The author, the captain of our faith was conformed to the standards of heaven while he was on the earth and therefore became the firstborn son. In the one minute I have left, I want to introduce the concept of the firstborn son. And that's where I want to begin tomorrow. So that you might understand, this is not simply a roll of the dice in the hope that something good comes out. God knows the end from the beginning and he knows the process perfectly. So, although Jesus was born later in time than Adam, he was born to to recapture all that was lost through Adam. The word for firstborn in the Greek is the word primogenitor. P-R-I-M-O-G-E-N-I-T-U-R-E. Primogenitor. The firstborn in the natural is the first from the womb gets the double portion in order to sustain the purpose for which that family is known. The firstborn from the eternal, who is Christ, is obviously not the firstborn in time. But he is the primogenitor. You go to primary school when you start school because that's your first. Primo or primo is first. Primogenitor is the first of the generations. And it does not refer to being the first from the womb. It refers to the one who is most like the father. So when there is a departure from the standard of the sons of God in the earth, what does God do? He brings back the standard. He brings back the firstborn. Adam was the first in creation, but Jesus is the most like the Father. And God understood that, which is why he required the slaying of the Lamb from the foundations of the world, because he knew, on account of the departure from God, that it would be necessary to bring back the standard of his house to reculture those (coughs) <coughs> who had been lost in Adam, but now are gained in Christ. So the firstborn is not the first in time when we speak of the eternal. The firstborn is the first in rank. In rank. That is why he's called the Lord. Because the term Lord 
is the word dominus domini, which means to dominate. The, the, the Latin concept is tyrannus, as in tyrannus rex, the tyrant. Now these are words we're familiar with from a different viewpoint. We think of dominant, or lord, or tyrant, as forceful, demanding, and will absolutely crush you to get his will. That's our dictatorial in that sense. But the nature of a standard is that it dismisses every other pretension to being an exact representation. It is arbitrary. In that sense, it is lordly. In that sense, it is dominant. In that sense, it is tyrannical. The intent of your suffering is to conform you to the standard. That you might be a partaker of the inheritance of the firstborn. I'll end it there tonight. Tomorrow, God willing, I want to delve into the principle of suffering with the intent of encouraging you to embrace it, not in some masochistic sense, but with understanding of what God is doing in you at this time, because this is what he's doing in the world, in his house. And there is great hope in understanding your place in the divine order of things. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and to establish you in your place in the sanctified one. May grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Good night.